Well, today we're kind of embarrassing ourselves with how little a look we're taking at such an important topic, but we did want to take at least a look, knowing it's not exhaustive. Last week we began, and this week we conclude, so that's how little the look is, at a two-part how to deal with suffering question. So in a brief way, we're trying to see a snapshot of what the Bible certainly says much, much, much more about what God says about what we should do when we don't know what to do. And if you're not in that situation today, congratulations, it's coming soon. And it's going to come often. Because we all live in a fallen world. But even if we're not in that situation, not knowing what to do at the end of our rope, I can assure you that somebody very, very near to you is, and you can be a source of God's goodness and comfort to them. So last week, we sat under Psalm 77 and began to peel back the onion of what it means to lament. That's not a bad thing. That's a very, very good thing. And lament is basically bringing our cry of pain, our desperation, our complaint to God. And today, we want to focus on a different aspect of of the theme of what to do when we don't know what to do. And that theme today is finding our cure in the compassion of Christ. And for that, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 9, but instead of reading the sermon text at the beginning and then going back to try to unpack it, I'm just going to read through the passage as we make each point. We'll begin in just a moment in Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. And our theme again is finding our cure C-U-R-E, our cure in the compassion of Christ. Before we look at Matthew 9, let's ask just one more time for God's help. Father, as a suffering people who live in a sin-sick world to which we have each contributed, We ask that You would pour upon us now the tender compassion that flows from the heart of Your dear Son. That by Your Spirit, You would meet each of us right where we're at. We ask this in Jesus' name for Your glory. Amen. I want to tell you what we're about to read in today's text. And again, we'll read it kind of in incremental pieces as we look at each of the portions portions of it. But what we're about to encounter are seven different groups or individuals. And these audiences will serve as the outline for, I pray, our Christ-centered meditation together. Let me just tell you the groups, and then we'll try to tackle each of them one by one. The first is in verses 18 and 19, and then is picked up again in verses 23 to 26, and that's a synagogue official whose name we find elsewhere in the other Gospels is Jairus, and in his situation, his daughter has died. That's one group. He and his family. The second group is woven in between that story, and it's in verses 20-22, to and it's a woman who for 12 years has suffered from what the Bible calls a hemorrhage. The third group is verses 27-31, to and it's two blind men who encounter the Savior Jesus. 
Verses 32 and 33 is another group that's a mute, demon-possessed man. And I say a group because there's other people who are around in that episode. Verse 34, we find a group of Pharisees. Verse 35, we see Jesus traversing the cities and villages, doing good and preaching the Gospel. And then finally in verses 36-38, to Jesus looking upon the harvest fields that are white and ready for the gleaning. So those are the various groups. And Christ, of course, is the dominant figure in every episode. The miracles that are in this portion of chapter 9 actually begin the third set of miracles in chapters 8 and 9. I'm not even talking about the whole Gospel of Matthew. I'm talking about two chapters. There's three sets of miracles in chapter 8 and 9, and we're in the third set. So in chapter 8, 1-17, Jesus is healing various diseases, including leprosy and fever. That's significant for a reason that I hope that I'll make plain later. Number two, uh, the second set of miracles is chapter 8, verse 18, all the way up to our passage. Chapter 9, uh, really verse 8, where Jesus shows His power over nature. He calms a storm. He, he there casts out demons. And then in our cluster of miracles, the third cluster, chapter 8, 9, verse 18-34, to 34, Jesus is showing His power in the raising of the dead, the healing of a really terminal illness and, and sickness and disease, the healing of the blind and the mute. D.A. Carson pointed out so compellingly in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew that what's happening in our sermon text is the fulfillment of what was written 700 years before Jesus was born. In Isaiah chapter 35, there's a messianic prophecy that when God sends the Savior, you don't have to wonder if you miss Him or if someone else could be mistaken to be Him because in Isaiah 35, again, 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah to come in Isaiah 35.1 and 2 will restore nature. And in Isaiah 35.3 and 6, He will give strength to the weak and restoration to the lame. And in Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, He will give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and speech to the mute. And so Matthew's saying, hello, it's Jesus of Nazareth. That's why Matthew writes as he writes in our chapter. So seeing the connection between Isaiah 35 and Matthew 9 and the seamless fit with really Matthew's entire purpose and the entirety of everything he writes in the Gospel of Matthew is this, Jesus, 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 Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah King promised in the Old Testament. Let me give you the sermon in a sentence and then we'll go through and try to dance under the light of each of these miraculous episodes. The sermon in a sentence. Your greatest need is only outmatched by the great compassion of Jesus. So many of you look so put together today. You do look nice, by the way. And it's very good to see you. And so many of you do look so put together. But last week as we tried to peel the onion of lament, if God were to peel back the facade that many of us sometimes try to put on, that's not a bad thing always. We try to just put it together, don't we? <laughs> we try to look like we're okay. And, and some of you genuinely are. And that is a cause for which we should praise God. But some of you are acutely aware 
of the need that all of us definitely have. So again, the sentence that summarizes the sermon is, your greatest need, and you have a great need. Incalculable, really. Your great need is only outmatched by one source. It's the compassion of Jesus. Let's go into the text to see. Let's begin with this daughter of the synagogue official who has died. Verse 18. While he, that's Jesus, was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. Pause there for just a moment. This account continues a few verses later, and as I mentioned, it surrounds the healing of another person, the hemorrhaging woman. So this passage, verses 18 and 19, and then again we'll get there in verses 23 to 26, but we're going to take it in the order that it's given to us. I want you to try to picture the scene. Try to imagine the Bible as you read it. Knowing that our mind's eye is not perfectly according with everything that happens in the text, but Matthew wants you to see what's happening. When this traumatized father rushes boldly and unapologetically into the presence of Jesus. Who was this man? Where was Jesus when this man made his bold approach to the Savior? Can you see the situation? Matthew tells us that he is a synagogue official. Verse 18. Mark and Luke expand on that and tell us that his name is Jairus. Where did he make this approach to Jesus? Where was Jesus sitting? Where was he standing? What was he doing when Jairus runs up and the text tells us falls down, kneels before Jesus? He made his approach to Jesus as they were sitting in somebody's house. Now, Luke and Mark only tell us that it was by the sea. But we know that it happened to be in a house by the sea as we look earlier in Matthew's account. And it was the house of none other than the person who's writing the letter. Matthew. Matthew had just been called to discipleship. That's verses 9 and following. They were sitting in his home. He was the notorious sinner. Jesus is sharing a meal with them. And he's answering the question of verse 10 to 13, the Pharisees, and of verse 14 to 17, the disciples of John the Baptist. So the initial context of this account, where Jesus is at, gives us a clue into the point that Matthew is seeking to communicate. Namely, that Jesus has come to pour His great compassion upon sinners, or as Dan Doriani in his commentary writes about this passage, in mercy, Jesus comes for sinners because there's no one else to come for. And that's where Jairus makes his bold approach. In the sinner's house. Matthew's house. Matthew shows in the way he records this story, his penchant for making his point as quick as possible. Matthew wrote a long Gospel. It's one of the longest of the four Gospels. But he really doesn't do a lot of space filler. He just goes right to the point. He leaves out some of the color commentary that's provided by the other Gospel writers. Mark and Luke also tell us about this very same situation where Jairus comes to Jesus. And in their color commentary, they say, In kind of the full orb sense, Jairus says, my daughter's about to die. Well, Matthew just gets right to the point and says in verse 18, my daughter has just died. He's not contradicting, he's just making a beeline to the main point. According to Matthew, verse 19, Jesus doesn't say a word 
I want you to notice this. Jesus got up with His disciples and followed the man to His house. He just stood up. Now, can you picture the scene a little better? Jesus is talking to the disciples of John the Baptist. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. We're at Matthew's house. There's a crowd gathered. Matthew's just been called to discipleship. He's left his tax booth. He's now a follower of Christ. He has no idea where his next paycheck is going to come from or if there will be one. There's a lot of people around in this place. And Jairus comes in. He falls down. He says, Master, she's only 12. She's only 12. Jesus doesn't say a word. He hates sin. He came to eradicate it. He hates death, which is the fruit of sin. The wages of sin is death. Death only exists because sin is in the universe. Had there been no sin, nobody would ever die. Jesus didn't die as a result of sin. He's the only sinless man who's ever lived. And He had to, John 10, lay His life down on His own initiative because had He not done that, He would still be on planet earth today in His incarnate form. He gave up His life. But all of us, all of us, all of us are marked by the effect of the fall. We all have an appointment with the grave. Our funeral is coming for us and the date is already set in providence. And when Jesus hears that a 12-year-old girl owing to no fault of her own, though she's infected by the fall, when Jesus hears a 12-year-old girl, she's already tasted death's fatal, uh, sin's fatal sting in death, Jesus just stands up. And He says, boys, let's go. He doesn't say a word. I read a couple of Navy SEAL books on my sabbatical. That's one of the weird things about me. And uh, it seems that Jesus does what those well-trained warriors like to do. He just gets up with deep resolve, flowing out of His holy heart and His holy hatred for sin. He gets a warrior look on His face and He knows that He came for one main purpose, that is to destroy the works of the devil and to rescue all the children of God. So He motions to His men Let's go. Dan Doriani wrote, without a word, Jesus and the disciples got up and followed the man as He led them to His home and to His daughter. But I want you to notice something. On the way. On the way to make a mockery of death, Jesus is not so preoccupied that He misses another opportunity for mercy. Instead of tunnel vision on one opportunity, we see this King being sensitive to the needs of the obscure people around Him. And hello, that's you. And that's the second scene. Number two, Christ and the hemorrhaging woman. Verse 20, let your eyes fall there. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up and behind him, pardon me, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once, 
the woman was made well. He's on his way to the 12-year-old's deathbed. He's in a throng of people. They're pressed tightly around him. The other Gospel writers let us know. There's all kind of commotion going on. Jairus may have had folks in his entourage who came with him. And J.C. Ryle comments, this woman in that crowd, quote, said not a word to Jesus. But she had confidence that if she could, quote, only touch His garment, Matthew tells us she knew she would be made well. There's so many precious gems of the Lord's compassion in this account. Matthew didn't write a science book. He doesn't want you to know the words on the page only. He wants you to know the author. And as I meditated on this account, I was again struck time and again by how in such a little space there are so many details that I had not paid careful attention to. But the biggest detail I missed was the compassion of Christ. What if God the Spirit would draw back the curtain for just a moment and let you look not at yourself and not at your hemorrhaging condition, but look at the heart of your Savior? A few observations I would like to draw out from these few little verses. And my prayer is that you would lay hold of the hem of the Lord's cloak. That you would receive the power and the virtue of Jesus fresh right now. If for the first time, praise God. Or if for the 5,000th time, praise God. One application I want you to take away from this portion is that as Jesus is on His way to face death, that's where He's going, and to make a mockery of it, He's intentionally going on that pathway so that you can receive His healing power. When He was at Matthew's house, why didn't Jesus just speak a word and heal the 12-year-old, raise her from the dead? Why did He get up and walk that way? Because this woman, He knew, would be on the pathway. She wasn't looking for Him. He was looking for her. And some of you came stumbling in here this morning and you have had besetting sins and you have had life circumstances and you have had relationship drama and challenges and sin-infested situations for so long you can't even remember how many times you have thought and talked about them and prayed about them and how many doctors you've been to and how much money you've spent. You don't even know how to begin thinking about what you've done to try to fix the situation. And what I came here today to tell you is you didn't come looking for Jesus even if you thought so. He's passing by the road and He's going to let the wind flow His garment out so that you can conveniently grab it in the middle of the crowd. Mark adds some additional detail. Mark 5.26, Mark says she had spent, quote, much time and much money with physicians. Only to find herself, quote, more sick and impoverished than when she began. Leaning into the Old Testament, which clearly Matthew is doing here, Leviticus 15.19 and following tells us that this woman's issue of blood would have rendered her, quote, unclean. And that anybody who touched her would have been made unclean as well. From common medical knowledge known in that day, known clearly in our day, we can deduce that she would most likely have been anemic, 
That is, because of her condition of blood, she was marked by a deficiency in her red blood cells and her hemoglobin, resulting in paleness of complexion and weariness of strength. Culturally, we can deduce that she was almost certainly unmarried, or if she was married, was obviously in no condition to fulfill her marriage bonds. Doriani again said, quote, I love it because it helps me see it. Not read it. It helps it read me. Her malady was chronic and irreversible. She tried to fix it. She tried everything she knew to fix it. Enter Jesus. Deeper than the physical in this poor woman's life was the sting of the emotional pain. The shame, the identity confusion that would accompany such a condition would have been larger than her life. She was known as that woman. How did her condition crawl upon her and wrap itself around her fresh every day? How did it deteriorate her identity? Dear ones, have you ever heard Jesus speak to your deepest area of shame and your darkest area of hopelessness? What Jesus wants to say to you today is something like this. What you are facing is not who you are. This is an identity issue passage. And may I for a moment just point you away from yourself through this woman's story. Point you away from yourself to the source of true security and true hope. If you look inward, you're only going to find more reason for despair. If you look to your social status or the ignominy that you face in society, you will either be improperly inflated in your view of self, I must be something, or you will be unmercifully decimated by your self-loathing. Look how terrible I am. But dear friends, there is a fountain to which you can fly for true solace and true hope and a rock-solid identity that will not fail. Do you see what the Lord Jesus does to this woman? Here's one of my observations. i got two. First, first, He puts the entire crowd in checkmate. He takes the focus off of her. And He puts all of you off balance. Mark 5.30 says it this way, Immediately, Jesus perceiving in Himself that power was proceeding, had proceeded from Him and gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched Me? Now we might think He's drawn all the attention to her. But the passage answers for us that it put all the attention on them and took the attention away from her because, Mark 5.31 says, and His disciples said to Him, you see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, who touched Me? Matthew only gives us two verses to explain what happened next. Verse 21, she was saying to herself, if I only touch His garment, I will get well. But Jesus turning and seeing her said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. But Mark provides, as I said, more color commentary. He looked around, Mark 5.32. Listen to the purpose statement. You ready for this? He looked around to see the woman. That was his point. That was his purpose. To see the woman who had done this, but the woman 
fearing and trembling, Mark says, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before Him and told Him the whole truth. I want to lift out for just a moment that He saw her. Which Mark renders, as I said, as a purpose statement. He looked around to see her. Do you see what Jesus saw? How long had it been? He was the first person in as long as she could remember who saw a beautiful portrait when He saw her face. Since probably she was a little girl, maybe about the same tender age as this deceased young lady, who the text tells us was 12 years old and she had suffered with this malady for 12 years. He was en route to raise this little 12-year-old girl from the dead, which is about the time of life that a young lady's cycle begins, and perhaps that's the reason she had bled for so long. And so when she was her age, Jesus wants her to know something. I see you. I know you. Her former public perception may have been, oh no, here comes that lady again. That lady with that problem. The doctors were probably sick of showing up at the office and seeing her name on the appointment list. Guess what? Jesus did not look at when He saw her. He didn't look at how long she had been sick. He didn't see a false identity. He didn't see an unclean person who contaminated everybody else and got them kicked out of the community. He saw her humanity, her dignity, and the passage says He saw His daughter. Daughter. Precious ones, when the Lord Jesus is in the midst of a busy crowd, He's not too busy to think about you. He's looking for you. He wants to lock eyes with you. He wants to look deeply into your heart and say to you, I came on this journey from where I was toward death. That's what He's doing. He's literally going to a dead girl's house. I came on this journey toward death to kill death. And to let you know how unashamed I am of you before the entire watching world. This woman had total shame. She was an outcast in the society. She couldn't get close to anybody. And Jesus said, I want you to know something. I came to reverse sin's curse to heal every kind of disease that flows from the fall, including the thing that you're facing today. And I came here to let you know in front of I love this. In front of God and everybody else. I'm your identity now. You don't have another identity. You're not that woman anymore. You're my daughter. He got up, Jesus did, when Jairus knelt down in front of him because he wanted the whole world to know she's mine. Have you latched on to the hem of Jesus' garment this way? Luke's account is so breathtakingly beautiful that I've got to read to you the whole thing. And a woman, Luke writes, who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, Who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone did touch me. For I was aware that power had gone out of me. 
When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. One thread through this passage that you'll see is the very obvious connection of the faith and the healing. But the faith doesn't do any of the healing, God does. The faith is the divinely appointed means through which the Spirit works through the Son to do what God alone can do. What you're going to find in this passage over and over again in the cluster of miracles in chapters 8 and 9 is that faith is the empty-handed receiving of all that God is for you in Christ. Did Jairus bring money? Did the woman bring a bucket of what she had left over that the physicians hadn't already siphoned out of the account in their genuine attempts to do her good? Later, did the blind men or the demoniac offer anything to Jesus? No. Faith is not giving something to God so that you get something in return. Faith is coming to God saying, I don't have anything left. I need you. You see, she needed to be in a position where when and only when she had nothing left, she could then realize Jesus was all she ever needed. The effect of her condition had relegated this dear woman to an isolated life. And Jesus publicly restores her to the community. Let's them all know she's His daughter. I can now envision the scene in a different way. Not the way she came, but the way she left. And I so wish I knew who J.C. Ryle was talking about when he wrote this sentence. To use the words of a good old writer, give me his name. <laughs> she came trembling, but she went back triumphing. That's what Jesus wants to do for you. We're not talking about giddy joy. We're not talking about super, superficial spirituality. We're not talking about just band-aiding the name Jesus over problems in our life and pretending like they don't exist. We're talking about the sweet grace of Jesus going down to your deepest, deepest point of need and causing you to hold on to Christ only as your hope. Your bank account is empty. Your ideas are null and void. You've tried it all. Good! The Gospel has to tear you all the way down before it can begin to build you up. And when you have nothing left to offer, now you're ready to receive the true Jesus. Well, back to the synagogue official. She got a healing that went far deeper than her blood cells and she was brought to peace with her Creator. And now Jesus shows up at Jairus' at Jairus's house. Verse 23, when Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in a noisy disorder, He said, leave. For the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at Him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news, I imagine so, <laughs> spread throughout all the land. Mark tells us the account, and I want you to hear it now that you've heard Matthew's version. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, that is, Jairus' friends, 
to say, your daughter has died, why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And He allowed no one to accompany Him, except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official and He saw a commotion. People loudly weeping and wailing and entering in, He said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at Him. But putting them all out, He took along the child's father and mother and His own companions, Peter, James, John, and He entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, He said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately, they were completely astounded. And He gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And He said that something should be given her to eat. I want to pick up on just a couple aspects of this glorious episode. First, is something about Jesus. And second, is something about the situation into which Jesus comes. First, because Jesus is so entirely fixed on the pleasure of His Father, He's altogether unfazed by the perceptions that other people have of Him. This is so powerful. Verse 24, He said, leave, for the little girl has not died, but is asleep. And what did the crowd do? One sentence earlier, they had two emotions. Weeping and wailing. One sentence later, they have a different emotion. Humor. Laughter. They began laughing at Him. It was common practice in that day to hire a, you know, professional mourners to create this big chaotic scene. People falling out on the floor and weeping and all that. And it wasn't genuine sorrow. It was cultivated, paid for showmanship. And those people who were weeping and wailing and playing the instruments could care less about the girl. They were just making a dollar, but they did have enough time and energy to laugh at Jesus. And I don't want you to miss this. Do you remember any other time that anybody else ever laughed at Jesus? And when they laughed at Him in any other situation, do you remember if anybody was dying? You know what Jesus is doing in this little girl's bedroom? You know why He went there? He's taken a sip of the shame of death. He wanted them to laugh. He wanted the attention to be put on Him. As the crowds laughed at Him, literally in the presence of death, Jesus must have felt a cold chill go down His spine in contemplation of another day when the crowds would laugh at Him and wag their heads at His own funeral. In this little girl's house, these jeering crowds give us a foretaste of the eternal home that Jesus came to prepare for all of us through His own death. And ironically, the laughing crowd were the ones who were spiritually dead. And the dead girl was about to be fully alive. She was about to walk out of that room and say, I can hear her now. Who's laughing now? 
When we say around here that Jesus came to reverse the curse, we're not trying to be cute with words that kind of rhyme. What we're trying to say is the very thing that this passage exists to tell us. That is, when Jesus touches things that nobody else is supposed to touch, and if they did, they wouldn't have the power to reverse or remedy, what we're saying is, in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 19, verse 11 and following, you touch a dead person, you become unclean. Jesus, on the other hand, in Matthew 8 and 9, in three clusters of miracles, is constantly putting His pure finger on the kinds of people that you're not supposed to touch. And instead of Him being contaminated with their problem, they're transformed by His power. The uncleanness becomes pure. You see, when Jesus touches death, He doesn't become unpure. Death gets purified. The person who has leprosy, had to leave the camp so that nobody else would be contaminated. So also people who were around corpses, you don't get close. But when Jesus comes on the scene, He starts undoing sin's issues. He touches lepers. And instead of being defiled by them, they're contaminated with His purity. Instead of death compromising the quality of Christ's life, Death gets compromised by encountering the unqualified power of Jesus. And I came here today to tell you that I totally believe that Jesus is on His way to your house. I believe that He desires to show up in your deadness and meet you with His power. Or your loved ones. Or the people for whom your heart breaks. And let me speak clearly. If your heart doesn't break for people who are dead in their trespasses and sins, I don't know what you're talking about when you call yourself a Christian. I don't know what you mean. If you've never felt what Jairus felt, if you've never got on your knees in front of the Maker and said, would you come to my house because my friend is dead. My neighbor is dead. My daughter is dead. I need You, Jesus, because I don't have anywhere else to go. And if I went anywhere else, they don't have anything else to offer me. So the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus is still saying the same sentences today that He's been saying during His earthly life and ministry. Like when He goes to Martha outside of Lazarus' tomb, and He says, Martha, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The second thing I want to draw out from this episode is that the raising of this girl from the dead is set in the larger context of the biggest miracle in the Gospel of Matthew. The greatest thing Jesus ever did, and He did so many great things, that John says if He would have written them all down, the whole world couldn't even contain the books. He did tons of great stuff. But the greatest thing He ever did is the main point of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark, half of its material is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. Clearly, that's the main point. Disproportionate amounts of the biographies of Jesus are dedicated to one week of His life. Obviously, that's the main point. This miracle is set in the larger context of the biggest miracle. And the point is, these healings are not the point. The main point of the Gospel of Matthew is not these stories. The main point is that the healer 
bowed his own head in death. And the reason he could raise little girls from the dead, yes, is because he's God. And God can do anything God wants to do. But also because he was giving us a foretaste of the power of the gospel that he would soon accomplish. He came, as I said earlier, to reverse the curse of sin, not only because he's God, but because he would one day swallow that little girl's curse whole. He can raise her because his body was raised imperishable. She died again. All physical healing is temporary. And so many times we pray for it, God, please heal so and so, and let's pray more for that, not less. But let's check our motives in the meantime. Sometimes we just want to more conveniently live for ourselves, and this sickness is impeding my self centeredness. Jesus doesn't heal for that reason, Jesus heals for Jesus. Romans 6 9 says, Jesus was raised from the dead never to die again. And I promise you, this little girl who at 12 years old was raised from physical death and then living in this fallen world, her physical frame died again one day. But I promise you this. That little girl's more alive right now than she ever was the day Jesus went into her bedroom. Ten million years from now, you will not have begun to start eternity. And forever and ever, the life of Jesus will course through your own soul if you're united to Him. So the mother and father who witnessed this healing along with Peter, James, and John, they weren't raised from the dead. They and everybody else in the house that day would die without a temporal resurrection. They would, although they would never again deny this little girl's story. I can just imagine somebody asking her her testimony when it gets showed on the video screen at church. It all started when I was 12. <laughs> you know what you need? You don't need God to raise you or your loved one from physical death on this side of Christ's return. Jesus even said, if some of you don't believe the Gospel because you don't believe Jesus is powerful to do stuff, Jesus said, if somebody rises from the dead, you're not going to believe in Jesus because of that. Most of the people who met this little girl still didn't believe in Jesus after He raised her from the dead and she told them her story. Jesus said, if you won't believe Moses and the prophets, you're not going to believe if He raises other people from the dead. Stop making excuses is what Jesus is saying. But what you need is not to be raised from the dead or one of your loved ones or to see some kind of supernatural, miraculous thing that would make you believe for certain. That's not what you need. You know what you need? You need to be around people who've been raised from the dead. Like this little girl and her family and Dan Dariani said the same power that grants this girl physical life is still granting people eternal life. And Jesus said the greatest miracle. This is why I'm a continuationist. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to this day because the greatest miracle is still happening. God is still raising people to spiritual life from spiritual death. He's saving people every single day all over the world. And I just hope and pray that you're among them. 
For any of you who have never trusted Jesus, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, if you don't even know what I'm up here talking about today, if you've never fled to His death for your forgiveness and His resurrection for your salvation, then I believe that Jesus is standing in your room today. He's standing in the room of your heart. And He's ready to say to you what He said to this little girl. Talitha kum. Little girl, get up. Young man, rise. Old man, been around religion a long time. I came to give you real life today. Before I leave this point, one small comment. I don't know how many of you are around 12 years old. But if you're around 12 years old, I was praying during our prayer time earlier this morning. God, would You save the young people today. Would You do it today? When Jesus was 12, He was standing on His own two feet showing His love for the Father. He loves to go to young people and show them His power. And I want to say to you, and I was praying for our teenagers. I was looking around the room, truth be told, eyes open during the prayer time, and I was very much praying. Lord, instead of a guilt trip, why don't this, why don't that, would You just cause it to happen by Your grace where the adults can't even get a word in edgewise during our 20, 30, 40 minute prayer time because all the teenagers, young men, young women, are crying out to God for a deep work of grace in their life and in our church. When Jesus shows up at the house, 12-year-olds start talking about Him. Third, y'all are thinking, oh man, He's got seven. Well, we'll get as far as we can. The men whose world was dark. Verse 27, As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed Him crying out, Have mercy on us, Son of David! When He entered the house, that's a common theme by the way, when He entered the house, this, the blind men came up to Him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to Him, yes, Lord. Then He touched their eyes saying, it shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, see to it that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about Him throughout all the land. Do you see the way Jesus interacts with these two men? Again, I'm asking you to envision the situation. At first, it seems like He ignores them. He just passes right by them. These are two blind men, remember. And we're told in the text, two blind men, do you see it in verse 37? Followed Him, crying out, have mercy on us, Son of David. Later, Jesus enters the house and the blind men, quote, came up to Him. Why, Jesus? Why not just heal them immediately? Do, does He not see how inconvenient it is for a couple of guys who can't see to follow Him and then to find Him in a house presumably crowded with a bunch of other people? Why doesn't He do it immediately? These men must have had some difficulty in following the crowds and trying to find Jesus in the midst of the crowd and making their way into the house. Is Jesus the most inconsiderate person in the whole episode? No. You know what He's doing? He's turning their walking sticks into pulpits. He's not being inconsiderate. He's letting them preach the sermon. Have mercy on us, son of David, they kept saying. It's their one verse sermon. 
And I wonder if you have ever heard it. I wonder more deeply if you have ever prayed it. Have mercy on us, Son of David. Don't you think the people would have gotten a little perturbed when they were in queue to ask their question to the teacher? But these two blind men won't stop preaching about this Son of David? Mind you, they didn't see the previous miracles because they could not. The blindness prevented them from observing the works that Jesus had done, which surrounds this passage. And Ryle put it so well, the eyes of their understanding were enlightened if their bodily eyes were dark. They saw the truth which scribes and Pharisees could not see. They saw that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of David, the Messiah, and they believed. Not only does Jesus delay so that they can keep on preaching the truth to the spiritually blind people around them, But notice that He physically touches their eyes. He didn't do that to the hemorrhaging woman. Why does He do that here? He's meeting them where they're at. He knows they can't see what is happening, so He allows them to feel it. It shall be done for you according to your faith. The common denominator in every one of these healing episodes is that they believe that Jesus was able because they believe that Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is not, this is not meant to be one of those passages that's often commandeered by the faith healers and the prosperity preachers and the people who are really honestly shysters and charlatans and play fast and loose with the Word of God and extort people rather than edify them. I interacted with so many people about this week's sermon text. One of them was Zach Jones who saw the obvious connection between Romans 4 and Matthew 9. And in Romans 4, We're finding people who have been given the faith of Abraham. The ability to believe beyond any external observation. Hope against hope. Trust in God when you're 100 years old that He's going to give you kids. and He's going to give you billions of descendants who are also part of the Messiah's family. How are you going to do it, God? I don't know. I just believe that you will. And God credits that faith to us in His own righteousness. The instruction should sound weird to us when God starts healing people through Jesus. And Jesus continues to repeat sentences like this, don't tell anybody. If you read your Bible, I hope you're wondering, why does He keep saying that? See that no one finds out about it. Don't tell anyone. What do they always do? Tell everybody. Immediately. Are they ever rebuked for that, by the way? No. It's called the Messianic Secret. Jesus wasn't trying to drum up publicity. He wasn't trying to be the next political ruler of your favorite party. He didn't need anybody else's affirmation because He knew He already had the Father's approval. He lived in total obscurity for over 30 years. He didn't need you to become His marketing manager. Let the Word do the work. Trust God for the results. If we worry about depth, God will take care of breadth. I have a couple questions about this Messianic secret. Not only were they ever quiet, and not only were they ever rebuked, but on the flip side, have we been told not to tell anyone or have we been commanded to tell everyone? Jesus tells them to be quiet. They spread the news far and wide. They're never rebuked for that. He tells us to go make disciples of all the nations. And for some reason, crickets. 
There's no danger in spreading the truth now. Now that Jesus has been raised, the great danger is actually in keeping the message to ourselves. It betrays our own trust and faith in Jesus. It's loveless toward our neighbors, and worse than that, it's dishonoring to our King. When the man in John chapter 9, who was also blind from birth, is healed, and the people come up to him and say, Who did this? And then they find out it's Jesus, and they don't like that very much. He just says, I don't know what else to tell you is that I was once blind and now I see. And Jesus is the one who did that for me and I'm very happy about that. One of the marks of our conversion is a concern for those who are not yet converted. It's a sure sign of the evidence of God's grace in us. Notice that Jesus doesn't set up healing crusades. He doesn't pitch tents and put out chairs and call the masses and do some kind of miraculous crusade, does He? And to all of the people who think that these passages mean that we're supposed to do something like that, I just say, wonderful. Would you please go a block away with me to St. Jude Children's Hospital and let's set the tent up there. Obviously, Jesus isn't healing every single person. What He's doing, and here's your word for the day at the end of our message, this is inaugurating eschatology. He's showing that the King has come and the Kingdom has broken in. And in this present evil age, He's starting to leaven the world with His Lordship. And one day, the whole universe is going to be like the little Garden of Eden was where there's no sickness and no pain and no death and nobody needs to get healed anymore because the King is on the scene and everybody in that kingdom will one day fully be contaminated with all of His power. And the reason He's not healing everybody is newsflash. Most of them didn't believe. Most of them, like most in our day, will never be truly healed. Look, the Lausanne Congress, I think, got it right. Meets every decade or so around the world with global leaders in the Christian community. And I think they got it right in their last global meeting in South Africa when they said, God's church, Christ's church, is to care about all suffering. And we're to do everything we can to remedy any and all suffering because our Savior did that. And while we care about all suffering, we care especially about eternal suffering. And that's what Jesus came to heal. He looks upon these two blind men. He heals them. He touches them. He shows His power has no limits. He encounters next this demon-possessed man who is mute. And we don't know in this text in verses 32 and 33 how Jesus healed him. All the others we get told. He takes the girl by the hand. The lady touches his garment. He touches the eyes of the two blind men. We don't know in this passage how He does it. And I think the reason we don't know is because Matthew wants us to connect to this story and say, so many of us have a story like this. I can't tell you the day I can't tell you if I was in my bedroom. I don't know if I was on the road on the way when Jesus was going from here to there. I can't tell you the day. I don't know what color shirt I was wearing. And I certainly don't credit my salvation to the day I prayed my prayer or nailed it down. I honestly don't know when it happened. But it's like Charles Spurgeon said. When he did it, I don't know. But I know this. Either I changed or the whole world has changed. But something is different. We don't know how he did it with these men. 
We just know, uh, with this demon-possessed man, we just know that he did it. The Lord Jesus then takes the attention off individual episodes, and in verse 35, He's going through all the cities and all the villages. God had one son and He made him a preacher. He starts teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom. And the NAS, I think, renders it accurately, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Again, it's not every single person getting healed. It's showing that His Lordship has no limits. And there is no challenge to His Kingdom. And just like He's doing in these episodes, through the preaching of the Gospel of the Kingdom and the healing of all these kinds of diseases and sicknesses, He's showing that He's the King of the Kingdom. When John the Baptist wasn't so sure that Jesus was actually the Messiah, he wanted to believe it down to his bones. He's in jail. That's John the Baptist. He's about to get his head cut off for preaching this Gospel and pointing to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he sends some of his friends down to Jesus while he's in jail. And John the Baptist says, ask him, ask him, ask him one more time, is he really the Savior? And Jesus says, go tell John this. You go tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. That the blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, Deaf hear, dead are raised, and the poor have the Gospel preached to them. Guess where that comes from? Isaiah 35. Guess what Matthew's saying? He's the one God's been talking about for 700 years. And if you miss Him now, it won't be because God hadn't done enough. It won't be because He didn't come to your 12-year-old's bedroom or He didn't meet you on the roadway or He didn't touch your eyes or He didn't open your mouth and let you speak too. If that's what you want from Him, then what's any different from that and you putting your money in the slot machine and asking it to pour out some kind of temporal blessing? Because guess what happened to all these people? The healing's wonderful. I'm not trying to minimize that. But they all died. Every physical healing is temporary at best. Jesus came to do something for you way bigger than that. Something that would never be taken away and would only increase for all eternity. That is, your capacity to enjoy the fullness of God will expand for endless eternities, and God will fill you up with the fullness of Christ at every expansion so that you'll be ever full and always expanding, deeply drinking in of all the fullness of this King. That's why He came. There's one group of people that I want to leave you with. There's multiple episodes where Jesus heals demon or sets demon possessed people free and lets mute, mute people speak, and sometimes they're the same people. Matthew has a few of those episodes. I want to leave you with one group of people the people who say something about Jesus after he casts the demons out. It's verse 34. The Pharisees were saying he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. Do you see anything after that sentence that Jesus says to them? Zero. All the people are interacted with by Jesus in this passage. In Matthew 12, Jesus does interact with the people who say such nonsense. But in this passage in Matthew 9, 
And in all the parallel passages from the other Gospels, we find not one syllable coming from the mouth of our Savior to people who spout such nonsense. He cast out demons by the ruler of demons. You know what Jesus does for those people? Please hear me. Nothing! Nothing! He doesn't say a word to them. He doesn't show up at their house. He doesn't meet them on the road. He doesn't touch their eyes. He does nothing for them. You know why? Because the most sick, hemorrhaging, blind, demon-possessed, dead folks in the whole chapter are them. Deafening silence. Eerie silence. He has compassion on whom He will have compassion. And speaking of His great heart of compassion, this same Jesus walks out of that situation and looks over the harvest fields of the world and beating from His great heart is this deep mercy. And He looks on all the crowds of people who are distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And He says to His disciples, can you see this? Can you see that the masses of all these precious people who have no shepherd are headed for a Christless eternity. And there's so few workers among them. And instead of turning around and saying to them what I would have said, I would have said to them, get to work. What are you doing? I would have guilt tripped them and myself and everybody else in the context. But Jesus doesn't do that. Because He doesn't need you to fix His little problem called lostness. And Paris Reedhead got it dead right when he spent decades in Africa trying to preach the gospel to people who could care less. And Reedhead said to God in a prayer time that was very honest one day, it's a mighty little thing you've done, God, to send me all the way over here to these people who don't want to hear anything about you. And God pressed on Reedhead's heart the thing that Jesus is pressing on His disciples. God said, uh, Reedhead said that it was like God said to him, I didn't send you for them. I sent you for me. And until your whole heart is Jesus-dominated, until your whole existence is Christ-saturated, until you want God's glory in you and in everybody else more than you want anything else, you're going to use Him. His disciples did it constantly. What do you want me to do for you? I want to sit at your right and left. They treated him like a vending machine. Answer my pop quiz question. Give me another little spiritual factoid. They saw him as a resource, not as a relationship. He constantly dealt with that. And in this passage, he says, I'm not sending you for them. Yeah, there's a big harvest field out there and it's ready to be gleaned, but I'm not handing you a sickle and I'm not handing you a, a burlap sack to start putting all the grain in. I'm handing you a prayer mat. Because when you get in the presence of the Maker under the light of the Gospel, you'll say working is very, very good. Doing is incumbent upon us. But praying is best of all. I love how Jesus employs everybody in the task. Are you a child? Are you a teenager? You're a stay-at-home mom? You're a businessman, businesswoman? What's your lot in life? What's your station of life? I make no apologies in saying every single citizen of the kingdom 
is commanded by the king of the kingdom to barge into the presence chamber of the king and ask the king to expand his glory throughout the earth. To send out workers into this harvest field who have an ache and really the compassion of Christ for the lost. You see, prayer doesn't change God. The reason Jesus wanted these people to pray is because prayer changes us. And I promise I'm going to leave you with this one. I never saw it until yesterday morning. I've meditated on this text a bunch of times. I've preached it before. And I never saw it until yesterday morning. I was asking God, Tony, Kennedy, Tassie, DMAC, Reggie, Peggy, Miss Debbie, Alfred, Mr. Red, Larry, Jermaine, Shonda, JJ, Alricus, Mario, Ladavion, Tadarius, Kirion, Kayla, Marshawn, Jamarion, Catrell, Kamarion, Kevin, Ray, Madison, Cameron, Kobe. Where are they going to be a million years from now? That's just a sampling of people that I've told the gospel to. I know they've heard the glorious gospel. The question is, are they going to latch on to Christ by faith? And guess what? I can't fix it. But I know somebody who can. And as I looked at this text, what I saw for the first time that I'd never seen until yesterday is when the king tells us to ask the king to send out workers. All the people who are working in the passage are the people who got healed by the king at the girl's house. Don't tell anybody. They go tell them all. The lady, she's trumpeting her story everywhere. The two blind men, don't say a word. They're going out and telling everybody. Another text where a demoniac gets healed, he says, can I just go with you, Jesus? Jesus said, no, 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 no. Go to ten other cities. The Decapolis. Deca, ten. Go to ten cities and you tell them. The woman at the well... She goes back to her city. She tells them all what Jesus has done. And it started to make sense to me. Who are the workers? The people who tasted the mercy. And if you go to the prayer closet, and you get one, 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 one beam of light from heaven, shine it into your soul. That is God the Holy Spirit communicating to you anything of the measure of the mercy and compassion of Jesus for you. This isn't guilt. This is obedience. You will definitely rise from your knees in the prayer closet and say, He must not have gotten finished when He got to me. There's no way that I could be the end of all God's saving purposes. There's more mercy in God than there is sin in the world. And I'm going out in the power of my Master to commend His love and trust Him for whatever results that may come. That's why the hymn writers would say, when cold our hearts and far from Thee our wandering spirits stray, When thoughts and lips move heavily, Lord, teach us how to pray. Too vile to venture near Thy throne. Too poor to turn away. Depending on Thy help alone, Lord, teach us how to pray. We know not how to seek Thy face. That's how I feel. I don't know about you. We know not how to seek Thy face unless Thou lead the way. We have no words unless Thy grace. Lord, teach us how to pray. 
Hear every thought and fond desire we on Thine altar lay. And when our souls have caught Thy fire, Lord, teach us how to pray. Richard Owen Roberts, who's a friend of ours in his 80s, been here many times, uh, preaches all over the place, lives in Wheaton, Illinois. He came to Grace Church and uh, I shuddered to ask, but I said, uh, Brother Roberts, what do you think? <laughs> he said, I think one thing. If God shows up, you're going to have to expand the time of your prayer meeting. If God shows up, if God shows up, 20 minutes ain't going to do it. Because there's too many perishing people and God's too worthy of their praise. And one day, God's going to break our heart for the lostness around us. And one day, by the grace of God, we're going to quit caring what people think about us or how we sound or how we say it. And Paul Washer said, as you care who says these kinds of things, if God shows up, here's another way you'll know it. All the people aren't going to sit comfortably in their chair. They're going to hide underneath their pew because the Holy God comes into your presence. And we start crying out to Him for mercy because we can't fix it. We can't heal ourselves. We can't raise our daughters. We can't make our children Christians. We can't get our neighbors saved. We can't do it. But we know somebody who can. And the great cure that you need, the greatest need of your life, sermon in a sentence, is only outmatched by the compassion of Christ. Shall we pray together?